Hi everyone, my name's Andrew Laird and I'm the host of the Radical Reformers podcast. I decided to start this podcast for a very simple reason. Everyone is listening to podcasts at the moment and there are lots focused on sports heroes and entertainment stars, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So I decided I would give them a platform to share their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations that they've put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future leaders within public services, but a lot of the lessons are applicable more widely. So I hope you enjoy it, and please subscribe on the Radical Reformers website so you never miss an episode. On this episode, I catch up with John Nyland. John was just about to retire, but at the time of recording, he was the chief executive of Provide, which is a community interest company delivering community care services, primarily in Essex, but also across the country. Every time I talk to John, I feel I understand what public services should be for and how they should be delivered a little bit better. Things to look out for are John's view on what it means to be a professional in the care industry and what really motivates people. We discuss organisational culture and how important it is to empower staff in a very real way. We also discuss public services being more entrepreneurial and not risk averse and how you put a culture in place to enable that. So that's enough from me. Let's hear from John. John, you're very welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. In my intro, I've said a little bit about who you are, but it would be great if you could tell our listeners a, a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Andrew. I'm John Nyland. Uh, I'm the current chief executive of Provide Community Interest Company that provides health and social care, uh, mostly in Essex, but certainly in other parts of East Anglia. I've been the chief executive uh, since we were formed in 2011, um, and previous to that, I was the uh, uh, the managing director of the um, uh, organisation that was still in the NHS. So, um, uh, and I'm just about to retire. And provide is a social enterprise. So, just could you just tell people who who may not know what that is? Yes, so we are a social enterprise, and, and as I said, we are a community interest company, which is a type of social enterprise. So uh, what we are is uh, we uh, do make a profit, but the profit that we make, we ensure that we reinvest in the community, local good causes, in our staff, in the organisation. And the organisation is owned by the staff. So uh, every member of our staff has the right to own a share. That share is non-transferable and we do not pay dividends on that share. But it does give them a right to say how we run the company. Yep. They appoint the non-executive directors uh, and indeed have quite a say in appointing the chief executive, which is uh, what they've just done. Uh, and um, actually exercise quite a lot of power uh, in the organisation. So for the last uh, nine years, effectively, I I've been working for them um, as opposed <laughs> to them working for me. Yeah, it's, no. uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Yes, and uh, but I, a key point there for, for listeners is that um, there are no external shareholders, so there's no mechanism to take funding away from the services and from the communities and from the staff. It all stays. Exactly. Yeah. And we have an asset lock in the in the organisation. Again, for those who don't know what that is, it just it means that we can't uh, buy or sell our assets in order to personally gain profit from that. 
Great. So before getting into some of the specifics of the things that you've achieved in your career, I want to talk a little bit about your overarching philosophy. So in conversations that we've had in the past, you've described yourself as evangelical. So what exactly are you evangelical about? Well, it's very interesting because I've just literally had an email from a member of staff who's been with us for ages to say goodbye to to, to me. Um, and the email says, um, I remember when I first met you at a meeting in 2000 and uh, I think it was seven or eight, whatever it was. And uh, I was the first person who had come into the, the organisation and mentioned the word care. And everybody else had mentioned about metrics and all sorts of other things that, quite frankly, people who join care organisations have very little regard for or interest in. Um, so it was, uh, for me, the most important fi- thing was to find out why people w- were so hung up on the word care. What, what did it mean uh, to them? Because clearly it meant something to them that was much more important than than the way the word was been bandied around for years. So I wanted to get to understand what that meant and what it meant for um, for people working in this organization and try and tap into that in some way in order to develop a culture that would uh, help the organization to feel like it's something that people want to be part of. And what I discovered, um, and again, this is not necessarily universal, but certainly a discovery of mine was that there's a, a large section of people if, who, if they're honest about why they work in caring organisations, is, is that they get a kick off it, a, a buzz off it themselves. So it's, um, it makes them feel good about themselves. So yeah. there's actually a part of this is not altruistic at all. It's a personal interest. It's almost, and I call myself uh, one of these, it's like an approval junkie. It yeah. makes them feel good about themselves. So when you're sitting around at a dinner table of an evening and somebody says to you, what do you do? If you say you're a nurse or a physio or, or you know, you work in the care industry, all of a sudden you, you're one of the good guys. You, yeah. you're, you're feeling like, you know, I, oh, I'm not I'm not a, a banker or I'm not this. I'm not saying that they're bad. So I wanted to question what that meant. So everybody who talks who starts in this organization, I give a talk to um, as part of an induction and I ask them why they're in it. And eventually we do almost inevitably get to that bit around, well, I do this to make a difference, to feel, and also it makes me feel good about myself. And I just say, well, actually, if you think about that then, and this is really important, I think, when you stop feeling good about yourself, as in you're doing something in an organisation and you don't feel good about it, all of a sudden you, you become bad at that job. Because the reason you're in it is to feel good about yourself. So if you're not feeling good about yourself, then you become bad at the job. And that's when all sorts of things go wrong. And I would refer to, uh, is it East East Staffordshire or West Staffordshire Hospital, all those years ago where, yeah, where everybody blamed everybody else. The care staff blamed the managers, the managers blamed the care staff. But every single one of those people working there had a responsibility. And if they really did stop caring, as in they let patients deteriorate in beds, why do people who who are in the business of caring because it makes them feel good suddenly stop caring? Um, And they suddenly stop caring because it stopped making them feel good about themselves. And I think that's about being mindful about who you are and why you do what you do. Uh, And once people grasp that, 
I think they become better at doing their job and feel part of something that they want to be part of and, and be part of a caring organisation. There's no point in, in explaining to them loads of stuff about metrics and hope that they grasp that. That's not what they're interested in. They're interested in themselves caring and making themselves feel good about it. But it's clearly some something that must come from the top, from the leadership, because the people in the example which you have just given in Staffordshire, they didn't start off as caring, I imagine. Is it a case of poor leadership and over-focus on metrics, as you say, just essentially beating the caring out of people? I, I, I think it is. I think it is. I, I don't think it's quite as simple as that. I think you have to give, you have to create the environment for people to feel that they can express what it is uh, about what they like doing. Um, and that's not to say that we we haven't in this organisation got all sorts of uh, ways of managing what good and what bad is. Uh, and, we, well, and of course we have. We, we have to do that. And we're required to record all sorts of metrics for all sorts of organisations. Uh, but I think you're right. I think if if you create environments where people don't feel that they can express their that part of them that they feel they want to, which is that caring bit, then then they do stop caring uh, and you get situations like uh, it will happen in Staffordshire. So and it does come from the leadership, I think. Um, again, I, I, I would count myself as one of those people who is an approval junkie. I, I want people to think good about this organisation. I want people to like this organisation. I want people to say that's a really good organisation. And, and, you know, if I reflect on the last uh, years I've worked here, um, I rarely have celebrated our success, but almost every bad uh, or, or complaint or bad comment I hear about the organisation cuts me to the to the bone. Uh, and that's what's lonely about being a chief executive. You, you, rarely, you rarely celebrate successes in the way that staff do, but you feel every pain that uh that is inflicted on the organization yeah no john you said that that, that you're retiring now are are, are, you, are you going to let yourself have a celebration to to reflect on what's been a really amazing achievement with provide uh, or will you never let yourself do that <laughs> <laughs> well it's going to be difficult celebrating in this environment that's for yeah sure. of course yeah. Uh, and i would i would have probably liked to be able to say goodbye to a lot of people personally um but, but when I, as I said, when I get an email from a member of staff who just read my final blog, I write a monthly blog um, uh, and they say things like that to me, it, it, that, that makes me feel good about yeah. it. You know, and, and that, you know, that really does tick the approval junkie pit of me. Yeah. Somebody yeah. says, I heard you speak and you inspired me and all that sort of stuff. And, and that's just my job yeah. you know, is to give yeah. people that ability to, to, to have that space to care. So where does your need to care or your interest in care come from? Uh, so it's really interesting because when I was first offered this job, I didn't really think I had any experience to to do it and certainly didn't know why I was doing it. Uh, and it took me uh, quite a while to reflect because somebody eventually said to me when I was asking them a question, you know, why are you doing this job? Somebody turned around to me and said, well, why are you doing this job? Yeah. And I said, well, actually, that's a good question. And then I reflected uh, back to two two really significant things, I think, that happened uh, or, or events. One was um, my mother died uh, when I was 10 and um, we were uh, 
uh, as a family looked after by um, nurses, uh, twin nurses, as it happens, uh, who came and they looked after my mother in her uh, in her uh, final year and months. But also they um, at that time um, uh, looked after us. There were four children in, in our family and um, they spent time with us, took us to their house, took us to clubs, uh, children's clubs, all the stuff that my mother uh, was unable to do. And, uh, you know, and we never we never as a family forgot those twin sisters and nurses. Um, and um, I guess I suppose I thought that's what nurses should be like <clears throat> or nursing yeah. should be like. Uh, but I wasn't naive enough to think that still goes on. And then I think the other thing that happened was when I've had uh, several children myself and several of them have ended up in hospital. And I've seen the other side of of nursing where, you know, for example, I wasn't allowed to take a cup of tea to sit with my daughter who had just been diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, I wasn't allowed to sit with her by the bed with a cup of tea. Um, I had to go and have a cup of tea somewhere else. And I thought, this is really strange. Why are they doing something as strange yeah. as this? Uh, and of course, it was all about health and safety. And, uh, and there were several other experiences I, I had uh, with health with my children. I thought, I, I, I want to be able to fix this if I can. I, I don't think, because the nurse was explained to me, it's nothing to do with me, it's to do with the law, it's to do with the rules. And I thought, if I'm ever running a ward, I'm not going to enforce rules like that because that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, there was, there was nothing about it made any sense. So, so I suppose those sorts of experiences and having some experience in social care um, influenced the way I think about uh, yeah. health and social care. And then I suppose influenced the way I try to get a culture in this organisation. So talking about culture then, and thinking about the public sector, do you, do you think that there is a culture of risk aversion within the public sector or does it depend on what part of it? I think it probably depends on what part. So obviously we've been out of the public sector, well, as in, as in not part of the public sector for some time, um, but my wife works in the public sector. So it, it's probably um, it's about who the leadership of that particular organisation is and, and what the the um, culture is of that organisation. I think it is more difficult to um, create a, a culture that is uh, entrepreneurial uh, and uh, give people the opportunity to take lots of risks. Um, uh, it, I think they do do it, but if it goes wrong, I think they get blamed. Um, whereas in this organisation, we encourage people to take risks and without the bit around blame. I've always said, if you're trying to do the right thing and it goes wrong, then I, I, we're not going to blame you. If you deliberately do the wrong thing, then obviously we've got a different situation. But if you, yeah. what it is you're trying to do is the right thing within your within the you know the, the, your competencies, then I I've never been bothered about that. I've always yeah. thought that you know then then that then do it um, mm. and you know we'll we'll see what happens um, after. So I think. Yeah, it, I think generally it, it, there is a less uh, uh, there's less appetite for taking risk in the public sector. But uh, that's not to say that it's not not happening. I'm sure there are some uh, more entrepreneurial yeah. organisations there. Could you could you say something about entrepreneurialism and public services? Because there are two words that maybe some listeners won't necessarily put together. Why are they important? Um, 
Because I don't think they should ever have been separated. Uh, I don't. I don't understand why um, you can't be entrepreneurial in the, in the public sector. There's, there's no real reason for it. The, um, uh, you know, some people who like changing things and, and like improving things and being, as I say, entrepreneurial, don't always necessarily want to do it for self gain, financial gain. You know, I, there are people who do, and that's that's fine. Uh, but Often people who work in the, in the public sector aren't necessarily interested in financial gain. They get their rewards from the fact that they've created something and done something that um, uh, benefits lots of people and they've been involved in it. So I just think as long as you're as long as we can create that and, and tap into that um, mindset for people, then clearly they can be uh, entrepreneurial. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. So I want to go back in time a, a little bit now and you started your public sector experience in a council rather than the NHS, but I know that that experience embedded some some important values in you. Can you say a little bit about your time working in the council? Yeah, sure. So, so I, actually, I was um, tapped on the shoulder by somebody who was working in the council when I was working in the voluntary sector. I was I'd, I'd done some work in the private sector and various other jobs, and then I I think I was uh, working in the voluntary sector on. Um, uh, trying to set up a, uh, a community transport scheme in in a part of Essex, um, trying to get some money for it. And uh, I was having conversations with people from the county council who who ran transport. And I think one of them spotted um, something in me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, there's a job coming, we'd be really interested for you to apply. So I applied and I got the job. And the job was effectively to work uh, what they used to be called really old fashioned terms. So I'm going to use them because it's worth noting how things have changed in special needs transport, mm. uh, as, as it was called at the time. Uh, and that was about uh, ostensibly uh, setting up dialer rides, uh, as they used to be called as well, in in different parts of Essex. Um, but it was part of that uh, conversation. And I, I wasn't really into transport at the time, but I started to read up about um, uh, transport for people with disabilities in other countries. And I completely got the idea that all transport should be accessible. We shouldn't be putting people with disabilities on on special buses with a big signs and the sign of them telling everybody that these people have got some needs that, um, that are different from yours. Uh, so I started to have conversations with the, the council about introducing low floor buses uh, and um, at the time there was a, a, a uh, an initiative by the Department of Transport uh, about uh, getting grants to introduce these buses and so um, I went about um, uh, bringing in the first low floor buses into Essex which we we got um, in the 90s I can't remember the exact date it was but um, yeah, and I was really pleased when when we when we launched that, that those first buses because they were significantly different. Wheelchairs could get on them, but more importantly, well not more importantly, as importantly, women with pushchairs could get on, on them as well, and buggies and all that sort of stuff. It was which, just much more accessible. Completely, yeah. I mean, that, you look around now, when you look at buses now, they, you can tell they've all got these accessibility. But back in the in 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 those days, no, it it was you know if you turn up at a a bus stop in a wheelchair, you couldn't get on a bus. Yeah, and uh, so it was really important. I think what what it opened my eyes to the fact that um, you know uh, this is about bringing the margins to the mainstream, 
you know, let's let's bring people uh, along and let's not patronise people with these silly, uh, you know, they've they've got their uh, their role, but the, the you know mainstream transport needs to be. And I also uh, worked with the railway company. So, for example, lots of the railway stations in in Essex, you couldn't get. Um, a, a wheelchair onto a train or even going to get onto the station properly. So we provided upgrades to all the stations as well. So really rewarding and interesting way of finding out about Essex because I went around to every train station in Essex. It was, um, it was quite it's quite an experience. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that, that that's really interesting because I guess in that role, you could have just managed the current situation rather than try and drive the sort of change that you did. Yeah. So there's Probably no, I, I think it's a good point, Andrew. Actually, I never thought of it that way. You're absolutely right. Is I'd come, I'd come in to do one thing, and I ended up doing something completely different. Uh, yeah. I was coming to bring in in, in dialer rides across Essex, and I thought this is a load of rubbish. Let's bring in uh, low floor buses, and I think possibly that's followed me around. Yeah. And then, so how how did you end up in the NHS? So uh, from from working in transport, I, I actually then got postgraduate uh, qualification in 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 planning, uh, and so um, although it was transport planning, I did also modules in other types of planning, and um, somebody from social services suddenly realised that what they didn't have in in social services was a planning uh, role. So you know you would just go from year to year without planning. So the fact that the population was aging, the fact that you had so many disabled people, uh, um, so many el elderly people, you know, etc. Um, they weren't planning for the future. So um, I had a notion of how to do planning. So again, somebody from social services in a meeting, I think again about uh, transport, uh, low floor buses and stuff said, oh, you know, we could do with you in social services. Do you fancy coming and have a go at that? So I went into social services um, and then at that time, again, we were talking about social care and health integration way back then uh, in the, in the 90s. Um, I think uh, we started to do a lot more work with with health and again, part of the planning, getting people discharged out of hospital, etc. And then, and then one of the a primary care trusts at the time said to me, uh, would you mind um, coming in as a comment to do uh, a job? And I said, OK. And then from there, they, they asked me if I would chair um, one of the committees within health. And I, and I started doing that. And um, yeah, and that's how I got into the, the world of health, which was a completely different language. I mean, the, 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 the transport language was different to social care language, which was different to health language. So I feel like I haven't I can't I can only speak English, but I can speak lots of different languages in English. Well, um, that that's quite that's part of the under. I mean, we'll we'll come to this later on, but there's a lot of talk from from policymakers about integrating health and social care but actually they're two very different cultures with two very different languages and we'll we'll come on to to that a bit later so the kind of thing which i know you you best for is the creation of provide as a community interest company and i'm, I'm going to try and explain briefly what happened but it, it, it was back when primary care trusts were separating commissioner and provider arms and the department of health at the time offered the opportunity to the to the provider functions, which is the, the community care nurses, um, to spin out, as they called it, into a social enterprise that yeah. would be owned, owned by the staff. So you obviously engaged in this programme back in, I mean, it probably took a few years, but you eventually yeah. went live in 2011, I think you said it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so why did you do that? I mean, it seems like a really radical thing to do. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, again, hindsight, uh, uh, do, you know, it does seem radical. Uh, but at the time, it seemed like the most natural thing in the world to do. I, and I'll tell you why, because um, it wasn't just about splitting um, commissioning and provision. There was This was under the Labour government as well. There was also uh, a process of um, tendering for these services. So, uh, for example, um, lots of community health services, if they didn't um, establish an NHS trust uh, or didn't establish a social enterprise, they went out to market and um, yeah. often won by uh, an NHS body. But um, you weren't ever sure where that where you were going to end up. So you had absolutely no control over what your destiny would be. Yeah. And that just felt wrong to me. I um, So first of all, I didn't start off by uh, saying we wanted to be a social enterprise. I started off by saying we had to take people on a journey um, and we wanted to discover what people wanted. Uh, so what we did was we we literally engaged with every single member of staff. We did quite a big organisational uh, development uh, process and, and had sessions with staff. And, and we we set out um, very uh, basic instructions to staff around what they were about to be engaged in. And so it's like, what's important to you? Uh, what are your red lines? Um, what what control do you want over your destiny? So not not saying to them, do you want to join a social enterprise or do you want to be uh, tendered or do you want to join a local acute trust or, or anything like that? So we didn't we didn't even start with that on the agenda. And to be honest with you, I, I wasn't sure what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to lead a group of people down the road of being a social enterprise. If that's not what they wanted because yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd heard this was going on in other places. And I don't think, you know, if somebody doesn't, want to do it then there's no point in trying to do it i mean that's actually quite rare that approach that you you know most most change within the public sector there is quite a bit of top down there's quite a big you know, top down yeah. element of it, and that's kind of necessary because you might you disagree with that but others would say it's necessary because well, i'm not sure why but it just seems to be that way that the leadership feels the need to set a very clear vision and then consult rather than uh, what you did which was to do it rather organically from the bottom up i think you're right but it depends what you're consulting on andrew i mean this was so big uh in terms of we were fundamentally uh, going to challenge some people's core beliefs. Um, and what was interesting about some of those core beliefs were that they it wasn't it, 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 it wasn't in contrast to what the core beliefs of whatever the social enterprise would be. It, it was more around um, things like, uh, and this was particularly coming from some of the staff representatives at the trade unions at the time was, you, you're, you know, you, you will change the staff's terms and conditions. Uh, you will change the staff's pension status, uh, and uh, you'll start to do stuff on the cheap. Um, and interestingly, at the time, several uh, foundation trusts were doing exactly that. They they were changing staff's um, terms and conditions. And I, and I had no, or, or, or myself and the senior management team had no. We, that was the furthest thing from our mind. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, we, that wasn't where we were going. But but, but the, the, the staff representatives went straight there, which was quite a shock to me, I have to say. And um, when we sort of fed back to staff what it is they said that 
they wanted. So, you know, they wanted some, they wanted to maintain their pensions, they wanted to maintain their terms and conditions, they wanted to uh, retain ownership of, of the organisation, which they felt that they had under the NHS. I, I did challenge them at the time saying, yeah. well, if you've got ownership of this, why, who's splitting us from the commissioner? It ain't you. So it's who's yeah. who's who's taking this decision because I don't think you've got any choice in this decision. So if you really believe you own it, uh, we could just decide to stay as we are, but we can't. So you don't own it. So we we established what the core beliefs, core values were, and 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 they wanted to be able to care, and they wanted to be able to uh, advance in their career, and all of those sorts of stuff. So we then set out um, that the criteria in in a kind of matrix to say, okay, well. If this ticks all your boxes, um, is this okay? And it, and the model that we came up with, community interest company, kicked, ticked more boxes than any of the other boxes. It was as simple yeah. as simple as that. Now nobody was expecting that, you know, because they everybody thought the boxes that would be ticked was let's stay as we are. But we didn't have the option to stay as we are. Yeah. So to that extent, uh, once we decided it, it became uh, quite a protracted process but also quite an, an enlightening process from, from yeah. a leadership point of view. I, I think that there's a really interesting process that, that you took your staff team through there. You mentioned that, that you were surprised that they were most interested at the start in, in terms and conditions. But I guess if you think about a person's hierarchy of needs, if they know that, that, their, that their salary and their pension is safe, then that opens up the part of their mind that can think more, more, more creatively, I guess. And yes. that's just a, a fact of life, I think, in terms of engaging with people. But Completely agree. Completely. Yeah. yeah. And, and what's interesting about that is they believed us, uh, the staff believed us, but their representatives didn't necessarily believe us. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. Um, so just uh, linked to that. So there was obviously a national government policy that was supporting this. And it didn't just happen in mid-Essex. It was all over the country, as you said, quite a lot in the southwest and other places. Um, but I, you know, I, I can't imagine that, that that support extended all the way through the public sector. Now, you have mentioned the unions there, and I'll come back to the unions in a second because I know that you're a big fan of that as a as a way of operating. But there must have been other other pockets of resistance within the public sector that didn't think this was the way to go. Yeah, there was. Um, I mean, I think there was there was resistance even in uh, in the Department of Health, you know, right right the way up to to the top, uh, and we got a quite a hard time from our. Uh, local representatives i guess we call it the region now um who you know when we when we set out our business case and our business plan and we set up our board uh, when we when we did the board to board meetings i mean they were some of the most difficult meetings i've ever had in my life where you know i was being challenged uh, uh from everything from a sort of clinical or medical perspective to a, a financial perspective to a governance perspective to a you know e the challenge came from everywhere people were really looking at us to fail I mean they didn't feel like that everybody was hoping that we would succeed uh, there was quite a lot element of let's see you f screw this one up yeah yeah I mean just I mean so you you were a union shop steward um mm. so how, how do you respond to the challenge that what you were doing, as I'm sure a lot of people probably threw this at you, that this was backdoor privatisation? 
Yeah, um, and I, and it was, it was something I really did struggle with quite a lot. So you, you're right. I, I was a, a shop steward in Unison uh, for years, and and I was very proud of what I did there and um, protecting, you know, workers' uh, rights and 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 uh, representing fellow workers. Uh, but obviously, when I became uh, a director in in NHS, that wasn't uh, allowed any longer. Um, so we did get quite a lot of challenge from the unions and particularly my old union. I think that some of the most vociferous um, conversations were with them. So I guess I drew on my uh, political background, which was a belief that workers of all sorts perform better if they have some um, control of the means of production or, or, or are, are li linked to the outputs and outcomes of that production and they can see what they have achieved. Um, it felt to me that with the the climate at that time of uh, tendering out um, health services, which continued right up until today, um, that that, you know, that that security of the, the workers having control over what they were doing and, and owning had had gone. It felt like it had gone for good, and that the NHS was effectively um, being uh, dismantled uh, piece by piece. So this, for me, felt like the best option in terms of, of of taking workers having control, whilst maintaining and, in fact, as time has proven, improving those terms and conditions. So the terms and conditions that we have are much more favourable then the NHS terms and conditions, uh, the okay. benefits you can get work for this organisation are better. And anybody who wants to be, uh, you know, I'm retiring, I've got an NHS pension. Anybody who qualifies for an NHS pension is entitled to it in our organisation. And anybody who wishes to stay on the terms and conditions of um, the NHS does so. But we have had the option and have had the option for, for years of people opting out of that because it sometimes suits people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and so we have been able to offer that. So I, you know, it's it's something that even some of my friends, long time um, lefties and union people, and uh, who still uh, challenge me occasionally, and sometimes my daughter's friends challenge her, which she uh, has, is very good at trying to defend. But I, I do think we made the right decision uh, at, at the time, and um, certainly our relationship now with the trade unions, or well, ever since actually, uh, ever since we did split. Um, or spin out uh, has been fantastic. We have we have the best yeah. relationships that we've we've ever had. Yeah. So so just thinking back to some of your earlier words on your overarching philosophy about care and what it means to care. Um, thinking back on your time with provide leading provide has has it achieved all you hoped it would achieve in terms of that philosophy? Um, a lot of it, and and, and the way. The way I kind of explain it is um, when uh, about uh, oh, three or three years ago, I think it was three years ago, we had this Care Quality Commission inspection um, we got good. <clears throat> and um, I remember being really relieved by the fact that we got good uh, and thinking, oh, that, that's that's, you know, that's that's my my job done. Uh, when I met with the staff uh, and the managers afterwards, they were incredibly disappointed. And I said, well, wh why are you disappointed? This is this is probably, you know, in, in this atmosphere, this is about as good as it's going to get. And no, no, we, we want to be outstanding. So it wasn't me saying we want to be outstanding. It was them. So 
we put in place with them a, a strategy to become from good to outstanding. And uh, last March, we got outstanding. Um, yeah. And it was because they believed that they were part of an organization that they could care. Uh, I mean, and if you look at the what it says about us as a caring organization, it, it, it you know, it, it, it makes me uh, actually quite emotional because of the way it describes us. So I think if you get, if you're part of an organization where it's not me or, or the board saying we need to be outstanding, it's the staff saying we think yeah. we're outstanding, we want to get to outstanding, what is it we need to do to do it? Then I think I've achieved quite a lot in terms yeah. of the culture that is in the organization. And I, and, and I, you know, I take my hat off to them. Um, you know, they worked really, really hard to do that. And that, yeah, so for, from that point of view. But there are other things that I wish, you know, we could have done, um, you know, more of um, and maybe better. Um, but, you know, I, I, I can't I can't criticise the organisation for what it's for what it's been doing. I think it's it's been doing lots and lots of really good things. And they're not all down to me. They're certainly not all down to me. Um, because we've managed to create a culture where people come up with ideas and and start new things and and you know we have people knocking my door saying there's a service down in in um in fact it was dorset i think it is uh we i think we should go for it and, I, and i'm thinking what, what do we want to do down in dorset and and we've won it and we started it and we're starting it in the next oh, well. few weeks yeah so so it's it, things like that when people knock on your door and, and i think well you've got full-time job anyway what do you want to do good dorset for so there there are you know really good things like that that uh, people have done what comes across really strongly here is that you are a very <laughs> empowering leader in in the organization and probably what what you've cultivated are, are a whole range of leaders at different levels who have learned that they do have the 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 agency and the the uh the permission to come up with ideas and try things. So that to me, knowing your organization well, seems to be at it, at the very core of, of its success. So what, for somebody listening who is within the public sector, what sort of conditions are needed within the public sector to try and replicate some of that? So I think it's about, I think, you know, to, to use a, uh, a management speak, um, Andrew, and I've only learned this word recently, it's distributed leadership, isn't it? I think that's what they, they term it these days. Um, and uh, it reminds me of, you know, the New Zealand rugby team, where there is uh, leadership on every yeah. part of that team. Um, you know, it's not just the captain. There are leaders everywhere in, in that team. And that's why... Um, they are consistently good. And, and that is true, not just in, in team sport, but in any business at all. You, you need that. Yeah. First of all, because you can't be everywhere all the time. You certainly can't see what's happening all the time. Um, so, you know, you have to trust people um, in an organisation that is dealing with very vulnerable people um, uh, to uh, do the right thing and that there are managers there to ensure that the right thing is being done. Yeah. It's impossible not to to do it, Andrew. It's not it's not like I've come up with any new idea. It's impossible not to do it that way. So on on that, then, can you say something about distributed leadership and managing risk? Yeah. So I think um, so. You need to make sure that those leaders have the skills and the appetite to to do it. So it's first of all giving them the permissions and um, making sure that they have those skills and then support when they don't know whether things are, are going um, 
uh, or things are going wrong because inevitably they do you'll you'll have falling out of staff or somebody um not doing what you hope they would do um and therefore and then supporting those leaders giving them the the um the air cover that they need when they are dealing with very complex issues and that includes dealing with you know if you have customer complaints or patient complaints whatever it is is trying to resolve those locally where at all possible so we do have that process in place it's only when it becomes more complex that we want to in involve um, our uh, customer care team so I think it's giving them permissions, it's giving them the support they need, giving them the training they need and keeping that development going um, and so that they continually learn. There's no, we've, we've, we introduced something in this organization last year called Mindful Leadership and all of our senior leaders, including all of the executive directors and now all the uh, managers have been on this Mindful Leadership course, which includes things like transactional analysis, understanding how to talk to people as adults, adult to adult, uh, and understanding what motivates people uh, and getting the best out of people. Now, for some people, that's quite challenging because it, it, it involves looking at yourself and understanding your own behaviours and the impact it has on, on other people. But if you don't do that and you can't do that, then on my view is you cannot be an empathetic leader. So yeah. I think something about, you know, I need to know what makes um, uh, our directors tick so yeah. I, can get, I can get the best out of them. They need to know what makes themselves tick so they can get the best out of th those people. So that's need, what I kind of yeah. mean. Yeah, you need, really need to understand them as human beings as much yeah. as as post holders with a certain yeah. set of skills. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about broader public service reform. So everybody's talking about integration, whether that's between health and social care or even between providers working in health. What does yeah. integration mean to you and where do you think it's going? It's an interesting one um, because obviously I've been involved in working in health and social care and um, uh, ever since I started there's been conversations about integration. If I reflect on even an individual organisation and let me let's use an acute trust for, for, for a minute that isn't even integrated with itself so with, even in an acute trust the, the diabetes uh, department hasn't a clue what the uh, the radiology or the cancer department is doing or haven't they haven't got a clue what the urology department is doing so there is very little integration uh, in in health never mind between health and social care so so that's the first thing to kind of dispel there's also in social care very little integration between um those people who work with learning disabilities and those people who work with elderly care uh, or those people who work with physical disabilities or those people who work with children. Again, you might as well be talking about separate organisations. So for me, it's not about the integration between health and social care or even between health community providers and health acute providers. This is about uh, integrating where, where it makes sense those services who are dealing with people at different stages of their life. Um, so children, you know, there should be clearly a link between education, social care and paediatrics in some way. And, and what that looks like and what that shape, that form that takes, I don't really know. And to a certain extent, the form needs to follow the function. Yeah. Uh, but but I don't, you know, I, let's not go down that route. Yeah. Uh, 
older people again is probably a frail frail uh, elderly people i'm i'm generalizing but there is probably a whole load of people who are working in social care who are uh, and in the private sector and care homes who are dealing with that on a daily basis as are our nurses as are some of our podiatrists there probably should be a group of those working in teams together who are coordinated in some way with some distributed leadership and i could go on uh, the yeah. fact that you talk about that what we tend to talk about merging organizations the the, the organizations you're merging aren't even merged within themselves so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a it's a it's a sort of fallacy to say that this is going to solve all the problems it will not solve any problems it will create a whole load of other problems yeah. so i just think we need to work alongside our colleagues to get to where a position of where it feels like it's right and then come up with what what the integration looks like yeah no that that makes a lot of sense to me certainly um so you've worked you've worked in the in the charity sector then council then nhs now in a social enterprise community interest company i mean how, how do you feel the public service marketplace is at the minute is it operating in the right way and are the current reforms really going to to essentially kill that that marketplace i i doubt we're ever going to go back to public services all being provided by publicly employed people i i, I don't see that happening in my lifetime i think that genie's out of the bottle um there is something that irks me a bit around um particularly services that are essential services that people are making profits out of that um certainly sometimes on on necessary or uh, uh, excess profits. I don't I don't I don't I'm not averse to people making profits, but I think there's there's excess profits. And I think some of the big organizations that have gone to the wall in 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 recent years uh, have been a wake up call to what we should outsource to the private sector from the public sector. So I think there's something uh, we need to reflect on there. Um, and I do think we need to be clearer when we're commissioning these services about social value. What what social value are we uh, uh, getting for from this company, this organisation, as well as uh, sustainability in terms of environmental impact these organisations have? So I think there's a way of outsourcing that is based on values, that is based on uh, good governance, and uh, and is about community interest. Uh, which is not necessarily to do with price. It would then be interesting to see whether or not the local government or publicly owned organisations can compete then with, with those successfully or not. And they should be allowed to at least try uh, and uh, achieve a similar um, uh, success rate. Because I do, as I said earlier, I think I believe there's lots of really good people in you know in in local government my wife works in local government she's incredibly entrepreneurial she's incredibly bright much brighter than i am uh, and uh has got a lot of responsibility uh, on her shoulders which um you know she never gets uh from the public's point of view gets uh, rewarded for public always just say oh I, I blame the council well you know uh it's the easy way out um so i think it's a mixture uh andrew but i do think we need to be much more supportive of our uh, public sector colleagues in trying to encourage the uh, some of the great ideas that they have and the entrepreneurial spirit they have um so i'm not sure i, I don't the answer is i don't know i think it'll be a mixture yeah it, it is tricky i mean one of my other interviewees sophie humphreys who who founded pause which is a national social enterprise 
um, much like you, very committed to public services and indeed the public sector where she spent a, a, um, a lot of her career. But push, she pushed back very strongly on any sort of ideology of where public services should be delivered from. It's mm. about where they're delivered, they're delivered best. It's about yes. the values of the organization. It's not about whether they are within the public sector or not. Um, yeah, I, I tend to agree. I, I tend to agree. And, and, that, and that's, yeah, I just, I'd, I'd you know, refer you to my previous answer. That's all about yes. the values of the company, the, what, what happens with the profit. Uh, I mean, if you've got profit coming out of a local area and going to the Seychelles, that, that can't be good. You know, it, it's about it's about, you know, uh, because there's enough there's enough profit to go around. It, it's a, you don't, you don't need excess profit from from um, public services. There's no need for it. OK, so, John, as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to somebody working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact in their career and not just be, as we talked about er earlier, the person who just manages things as they are, but wants to make a real impact and a positive change? I suppose the thing that I learned quite quickly um, is, uh, first of all, have the right people around you. So uh, if you're going to try and do something and be brave, and a lot of it is about being brave, it's much easier being brave if you have people watching your back, you know, quite frankly, you know, that's true in all walks of life. You know, I can be really brave if I've got three great big blokes behind me, you know, uh, walking into a bar where I'm challenging somebody, you know, so, you know, uh, I, um, so it, it's, uh, if you've got to run uh, a business and you've got some good ideas, have somebody who can challenge you on, on your ideas to say, are you sure about that? You know, is it, have somebody who um, is good at putting things into uh, a process or or, or, or systemizing it or, or scaling it so that you so that your idea can be can grow and and have somebody around you who uh, is there to listen to you when you've uh, inevitably you know hit hit brick walls. I've done a bit of cycling in my time uh, and I very much refer to uh, leading uh, an organization like this uh, very much like being in in a cycling team in a peloton you know. Uh, somebody leads you out, uh, and uh, and then somebody comes in and takes over it for a while, and then somebody else comes and takes over. So you go in their slipstream, but all the time you're all working together to get to the to the to, to win the you know to win the race. But it's it's a team effort. But also somebody is probably going to win the race. Uh, um, but the team know that the team know that well, they're working for this person to win the race. Yeah. And, and so you really find out quite quickly um, when, when you are running an organisation, whether you are part of that team. So when you do have a problem and you step back, whether anybody actually comes and takes on the cycling and, yeah. and, and, and pulls you on. If you haven't got if you find that out quickly and you haven't got them, you need to get them yeah. uh, because inevitably your energy levels will fall. Uh, you cannot operate hyper activity all the time uh, and you will need to take a rest and um, if you take a rest and people so all of a sudden take a rest with you you're in trouble you need to ensure that when you're taking a rest somebody else is there to lead you so uh, be brave but have the people around you that allow you to be brave and also allow you to take the odd rest uh, and drive the company on uh, while you're having that rest 
Great. Well, on that note, John, thank you so much for your time. And it's been really good talking to you. A pleasure, Andrew. Thank you very much as well. So I really enjoyed that conversation with John. And to conclude, I wanted to share some of my own reflections. The first is around what it really means to care and to be a professional in the care industry and what motivates people. And I think John made a really powerful point around if you're asking people not just to give their head, but a piece of their heart to a role, then you really have to ensure that they feel good about themselves. And I think when care fails, as John said, it can often be traced back to the culture, creating an environment where people stop feeling good about themselves. And there is clearly a big onus on leaders to create the culture and the environment where this happens. I also thought the point on the importance of supporting people to try and do the right thing, even if that involves some risk, was really important. John clearly feels very strongly that public services must be entrepreneurial, whether they are situated within the public sector or in an independent organization. And finally, and this is a point that I hear repeatedly on the, the Radical Reformers interviews, is the importance of having the right team around you as a leader. No person can control everything. No person can have all the skills, but recruiting people and putting a team around you that has the skills that will complement your own as a leader is extremely important. So thank you very much for listening to this episode and remember to subscribe on the website to never miss an episode in the future.